now, now that the question has been raised, has Babe Ruth ever said the N-word, I've uh, started recording. Oh. <laughs> David, why did you ask that? That automatically uh, triggers uh, the recording. Um, I have it set up. There's no way to get out of it. It's in our settings that if um, the inward database is accessed, then it starts recording immediately. <laughs> but I, you know, I but is it like? So there's one. It's like this is getting into very weird race science, but like <laughs> the, the race science of Babe Ruth. Like there's a pheno phenotype phenotypical argument made for Babe Ruth all the time. And it, I think, circulates in lots of uh, black circles and also probably in white ones that he looks very, uh, he has features reminiscent of, of many black people who live in America. And that his, his kind of um, lineage is very much in question. Yeah. Um, but I don't know how far you take that because he's like, you know, he was super German, like born to German dad. And, you know, the whole thing, like he was raised in a saloon in his dad's saloon and then yeah. in an orphanage because he was so incorrigible. And fat. Well, that's only in the movie because they wanted John Goodman to play Babe Ruth for some <laughs> reason. Like if you look at like old photos of Babe Ruth, he's not like fat. He's fat like at the end of his career when he's like loaded up on hot dogs and beer. And then again, <laughs> suddenly not fat because as soon as he retired, he got throat cancer. So he becomes very, very trim uh, pretty quickly. Uh, he And like, if you look at really old pictures of him, he's just skinny. He's just like this rail thin kid. Um, you know, I think he got, he got fat for his guest appearance in The Natural. Yeah. That's my that's my timely reference for the kids to the the natural. Everybody watched. Everybody loves Barbara Hershey, right? Am I right, folks? I thought you were gonna say everybody loves Bernard Malmood. Everyone loves <laughs> Bernard, Bernard Malmood. Am I right or am I right? I still never read the novel. Is it all right? I heard it's very different in, from the film. In my vast research into finding out as much as I can about baseball, both fictional. <laughs> And the actual, uh, I yeah. somehow missed reading The Natural. <laughs> but you read books. Come on, doesn't have to, you don't read yeah. books about the only things that you're interested in, right? Like, I'm... Uh, I'm not, <laughs> see, I'm a, I was a literature major, or a, yeah. I have a creative writing major, yeah. so I didn't have to read that many books about things I wasn't interested in. Do you not read books about Robert Redford? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That's not a policy that I have. Did I read books about the Sundance Film Festival? I read The Hobbit, and I don't like short people. <laughs> Those aren't people. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, <laughs> short people are people. I agree, but let's know we've already we've already no, we've mean, already opened sure. the inward database. We can't go into this. <laughs> the Hobbits are. Um, um, uh, made out of different clay i think i don't know i don't remember all that racist lord of the rings shit <laughs> how can lord of the rings I, be racist it's not even set in this world yeah yeah exactly i was actually i had a whole uh um, conversation with a friend of the program whose name i won't mention um <laughs> <my friend laughs> because because it's very racist 
<laughs> no, it's just like explaining why um, Lord of the Rings sort of bought into a whole sort of racist ideology. And it's just yeah. like... I imagine being a, yeah. a professor at that time in like England, like 1930s England. Like how could he possibly buy into any kind of racist <laughs> ideology? Well, the thing is that it's like, it's not, he wasn't trying to do that. He wasn't pushing that agenda. It's just that like, you know, when you get into uh, even fairy tales or anything, it's right. like, you know, if you're a princess and you're better than other people, that like uh, there are people who have a right to rule because of their genealogy, like all of that stuff is yeah. problematic, but it also makes for a good fairy tale. Yeah, I had, I think I was maybe finishing up The Hobbit and I had to explain to Musashi when I was reading it that uh, black doesn't mean um, uh, like uh, black people. It means like a lot of English writing, it means like a, a dark mood or a dark, a, a bad character. Uh, I think it was in the, in the Lord of the Rings. I can't remember what we've been reading since then. No, oh, he's, yeah, it was in Lord of the Rings, but it was also in The Borrowers because he's reading The Borrowers on his own now. And I was kind of like, well, it's not exactly what that means. Yeah, it's, 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 it's but it's it is also like, kind of what that means sometimes. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost like uh, uh, um, uh, Western Europe has a problematic uh, history that it is. <laughs> It is exported to every place it ever colonized, which is to say every other part of the world. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, um, never got to the Panhandle. They, uh, you could say, like you could say we were talking about before we started recording, you could say they joined, they spatially joined it with the um, their tables. They joined that table. Like, well, that's actually that the book manuscript I'm turning in. It's called The Shape File of Racism. It's about uh, it's about the inherent racism of GIS, data. the shape file of things to come. <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, that's why you know that's why I say just don't read books. Like if you want to stay away from racism, <laughs> if you want to like be as anti-racist as non-racist as you can, just stay away from books. Yeah. books Watch have ra- books have racism in them. Yeah. Whereas conversation keeps you pure. That's what I say. Stay away from watch college sports. Stay away from racism. Wait, sorry. (laughs) Edit that out. Listen to sports announcers. Yeah. Stay away from racism. You can learn about things like that have no racism, like golf, uh, steakhouses, uh, who is really (laughs) good at golf. Uh, mm-hmm. a funny story from the clubhouse about the time that they all made fun of the black guy who uh, watches their uniforms. Yeah, talk Things about like who that. is the uh, who are the real like the mental players and who are the athletes? Like who are the mm-hmm. who are right. the thinker? Like, yeah, yeah. You can think. You can uh, hear the debate about why Mac Jones is the is the great quarterback. Uh, a good thinker, a good game manager. Well, whereas people like Cam Newton probably with the more animal instincts to just yeah, keep going he's, forward. He's not, athletic. Do, he's more athletic. Yeah, you can do non-racist stuff like that. Uh, that's what you can avoid by reading books, which you shouldn't read. Um, speaking of reading books, this is nothing to do with our purview or anything. But uh, I, I watched The Power of the Dog this week. Did either of you watch that? The new Jane Campion movie. No. It's good. I liked it. I haven't watched in a long time. I have not watched a slow, serious movie. Um, 
and I was trying to explain this again to Musashi. I was like, I watched a slow, serious movie. He's like, what does that mean? Because he's 10. And I was like, well, it's a movie where there's no like action. There's no like good guys versus bad guys. And he said, wait a second. Like, how, what is a, how do you have a movie without good guys and bad guys? Like, yes, I understand. <laughs> Yeah. In the amount of movies Thank we've you. watched together. Thank you. Being... Finally, somebody's asking the, the real question. <laughs> it's, a, it's a kid who has grown up in the Marvel Universe. This is a hard concept for him. But it's from a, a book written in like the 50s or 60s by a guy who writes all these Western novels that I had I was not aware of. Um, but I, I it's got Benedict Cumberbatch in it, um, if you're into that sort of thing. And it's Dr. set in Montana. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Strange. Strange is, yeah, so there is a bad guy in it. Sherlock so Thomas Holmes. Savage is from a Thomas Savage novel. Um, but, well, I guess after you watch it, I can ask you about it. But it's one of those, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like the, like the New York Times review of it was like, whoa, spoiler, like how, explain this ending. When to me, like the whole movie was a series of like Chekhov's guns just being laid throughout mm. and i don't want to spoil it for anyone but the first minute of the movie is the main character pointing at a cow with anthrax and saying whoa stay away from that cow it's got anthrax um and then like, <laughs> new york times like writes a thing about like the ending it's like yeah the ending was pretty the whole thing was pretty explicit building up to it but it's um yeah it's kind of about the the kind of um simmering uh strangeness of being like a, a closeted cowboy in the 1920s but it's good it's good it's just like do you mean he's trying to pass as not a cowboy mm -hmm. yeah yeah he's trying to live in society not as a cowboy but it keeps like like thinks he's like walks out with his chaps on and be like whoa are you a cowboy he's like no no i'm just gay <laughs> uh, is this the uh san miguel live blog yeah. <laughs> this is just a commentary on chaps uh, this is the uh this is what the woke college has done to us everyone has to flaunt that they're gay and hide that they're a cowboy <laughs> oh man i've also been reading this week i'm because i'm trying to get rid of a lot of books i'm trying to finish up ones that i haven't read i'm reading um they were we were soldiers once and young by how more about the battle of lz x-ray of which my dad was proximate so i keep expecting him to pop up in the book but he hasn't yet there's like one guy from pensacola but that's that's it uh, it does talk pop about up how in the book and say get your nose out of that book yeah. You got work to do. <laughs> yeah. Actually, no, my dad would be the opposite. He would say, please read more this Vietnam book uh, and learn about real men. No, okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my dad hasn't popped up in it yet. I but I don't know. It's, it's one of those things. I mean, if you, I mean, I, this is true for everybody, I think, but very much for me, any dad with a military past, you're not sure like which part of it is the real part and which part isn't. So I, I think you somewhere in there. Who knows? Hmm. Not then. No, are there any people in the military who's like? I guess a lot of like normal people have really straightforward military stories. My dad's is not so much. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, <clears throat> um, that's Scott. Scott Farron's military stories are about working working in an office in Germany. His are great. He's got one of my favorite, and I tell these to my dad and when he gets his military base around, but where Scott decided to quit the military because, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, they gave him like a 300-page instruction manual about when to push a button 
and when did not push the button <laughs> and set him in front of it and said, okay, this is what you do now. And uh, he pretended for a while to not understand the manual about pushing the button. <laughs> well, I don't know that story, but it sounds, it sounds good. It sounds sort of Scott-esque. Yeah. I, as, as I've said many times, I grew up between at least two military bases and it's so funny. Like, like now that we are well, 20 years into Iraq and Afghanistan, like about, I think I wish people more people realize like how many military jobs are just the most ridiculously boring office jobs you could ever think of. Like when I was when I was growing up, my my one of my best friends' dad worked on base, and before nine eleven, you could just drive on base on Herbert Field, like the JSOC command. You could just drive onto base and say, like, I'm going to see my dad at work, and his dad just worked in a building with like all those like big reel to reel computer machines. <laughs> and, yeah. and his job was to kind of like sit at a desk with like a window looking at the reel-to-reel computer machines and then like make sure the reel stayed on that's kind of like, make sure that no smoke was coming out of them yeah <laughs> that's like kind of what he did for just years and years and like most people's parents that i knew who were in the military like had desk jobs that's what they did they what happened on 9-11 um i mean which 9-11 really uh uh, the, I, I guess I forgot. I forgot. Yeah. I, forgot. I, I uh, was watching um, videos with some students earlier today, and uh, the Talking Heads Life During Wartime came on. Uh, and yeah. one of the guys said, I mean, did this guy actually live during wartime? <laughs> and <I'm> like, <laughs> he's, he's an American. He lived in the 20th and 21st century. Yeah. So I think the answer is an unequivocal yes, but I don't think the song is strictly about that. Like, it's a little bit metaphorical if you listen, but... Uh, no, no uh, songs are metaphorical. Like, you know, yeah, that there's such thing as being an American and not living during wartime. Or there's such yeah. thing as being an American and having metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny now to think about like, there's like a huge, like decade long time you could have joined the military and like had like a partial career and like never have been faced with combat ever. Like my, <laughs> uh, my, my neighbor, I'm going to sell people. My neighbor growing up uh, was a navigator on C-130 gunships. And, um, the only combat he saw was like when they went to Panama and uh, and got a swarm of killer bees in the back of their C-130. <laughs> and like he would like write home, he'd write home about it. Like we had a killer bees in the C-130. Um, I say, I mean, if you were a Panamanian citizen, you saw combat during Panama because America yeah. fucking blew up the poorest neighborhoods yeah. in Panama City. But if you were... Yeah, you wish yeah. you got attacked by killer bees. Yeah, if you were, you know, flying a C-130 for the Air Force, like, you didn't you didn't see combat. I mean, you might have fired fired your massive cannons on a, on a neighborhood in Panama. Simpler times. Simpler Way times. simpler times. You could have, like, you know, uh, watched the Clint Eastwood classic, um, I forgot the Heartbreak Hill, about the invasion of Grenada, where Mario Van Peebles has to use his credit card to call back to headquarters the place to call, call the headquarters you could have seen combat in grenada and panama what's the clint Eastwood one is about grenada i think i it, think yeah. so i think it is yeah i think heartbreak yeah. Hill is 
And it's got all of like the the it's got is is combines. It's really this is a talk about like spatial linking. It's like all it's like an eighties movie. It's an eighties movie with all of these war movie tropes in it. He's like he's the hardened gunnery sergeant who knows what real soldiering is, and he has to break this platoon in so they can serve in Grenada. <laughs> it's like, the hopeless weekend of their lives. Yeah. And my dad used to get me to watch it because I had these, he loves like the military fight scenes. Like I would be allowed to watch the fight scene from Officer and a Gentleman, uh, but nothing else. Um, like it has like the big, they all fight in these mud pits where, um, where Gunny, Gunny Clint Eastwood has to fight the Swede, who's this giant Swedish guy who's in the Marine Corps for some reason. Uh, yeah. I should say for the record, I love all the horrible Clint Eastwood movies. Um, in the line of fire. Well, that's not a horrible one. That one's okay. Uh, any which Grand, any which way but loose. Any which way but loose. Uh, Grand Grand Camino El Camino Grand El Camino Grand. In the line of fire. In the line of fire. I think you've already mentioned Richard Jewell. I have we're not watched. On, a, we're hmm? coming up on like the twenty eighth or 29th or thirty ninth uh, anniversary of Grenada. It was. December 25th through 29th. So it was four days in October. Of days. Days. I mean, <laughs> those Cuban construction workers were hard to murder. October of 83. <laughs> You're the U.S. Marine Corps, man. Construction work, because they have shovels. Yeah. You don't know what you can do with a shovel. Do you, know, you realize how hard it is to dig a mass grave? Do you have any idea? <laughs> We got to remember, Grenada controls the Atlantic shipping lanes. If Cuban construction workers are allowed to build in Grenada, we can never ship in the Atlantic again. We would have to go around Grenada. How do you do that? So I'm reading, as I said, I'm reading uh, We Were Soldiers Once in Young, which is about the early early years in Vietnam, LZ X-ray, 1965. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Howe Moore and his first air cavalry conducting helicopter warfare. And it's so, so funny because it's like, well, anybody ever been around a Vietnam veteran? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. So it's, it's the same thing that I've heard a million times and you, it picks up in books and movies about how unfair it's so unfair because the, the Viet Cong were, they went, they would run supplies through Cambodia and we were not allowed to go into Cambodia. It's so unfair. And then like in the next paragraph, it'll be like, anyway, we called in a B-52 strike out of Guam. <laughs> it was like, okay, yeah, we're, we're flying helicopters out of Pleiku that we've like run, we've shipped them to Japan. We've run, we have uh, air bases in Japan. We have air bases in the Philippines, naval bases in the Philippines. We fly B-52s out of Guam. We have an entire supply chain. We sent our troops over on ships through the Panama Canal. And then it's like, we, oh, I, they did it. They went into Cambodia and then came back out. They have like shoes Kurt. made of spare tires. Yeah. Well, did he come out? I guess he came out. Um, In pieces. It was implied that he came back out, yeah. <laughs> 
It's like, it's, I mean, it's, it's just bad. so weird to read. And like they're firing. They're like, okay, we got attacked by like thousands of North Vietnamese soldiers. We're firing from our fire base. It's three miles away onto them. We're coordinating our air support. We're having helicopters, rocket ships. We're doing B-52 raids, all this stuff. Why are they being so unfair to us by making us land our helicopters in this clearing in Vietnam? And then they attack us. What what's up with that? I everything I know about the Vietnam War I learned from uh, Forrest Gump. So some of like this directly, is illegal. like directly. The guy came to your house. Yeah. <laughs> he used to come now over and sit on the porch. Now listen, David, I got a story to tell you about. Is that what's the Forrest? I never watched that dumb movie. What's his voice? Um, well, I, well, I, I tell you, David, about the Vietnam War. <laughs> I think Forrest Gump was like when he he couldn't get an apartment, and so him and his friend like they had to dress up like women, and like they lived like, in an all. <laughs> Am I thinking of the right movie? Rip, Rip Peter Scolari. Rip rest yeah. in, rest in power, Peter Scolari. Rest in power, Peter Scolari. Gone too soon, Peter Scolari. Man, those two guys had different careers. <laughs> they did. I'm trying uh, to think. Only of one of them had to be on Peter Scolari was in was. He was in something. He's in something that's popular recently, and then he he dipped. He was in Peter Scolari. was in uh, Evil, this TV show that was on CB. It was on like the CBS online service that was about. It had um, what's the guy that played Luke Cage? It had a Luke Cage in it. Um. Yes, uh, Mr. Handsome, I believe it's his Mr. Handsome, Mr. Handsome, Luke Cage himself. Uh, but it was about like basically like Catholic Ghostbusters, and uh, oh, yeah. it had. Um, but he was like the he was like the priest that they reported to. Mike Coulter played Luke Cage. Uh, yeah. Catholic Ghostbusters sounds awesome because isn't that. I mean, that's kind of being Catholic anyway. But you're kind of like ghost preserver, ghost buster, ghost enthusiast in general. Yeah, they have exercise. Catholic holy ghost busters. Now there's a movie. Well, there was like Mike Coulter, Luke Cage was like the, he was the believer. And then they had, um, they had an agnostic, but then they also had an, like an atheist. They had like an agnostic, an atheist, and all a Catholic. That. They all walked, and I guess like I remember the episode I watched. They walked into a bar, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. and then one ducked. The last yeah, and they ducked. said, "Ouch!" And they said, "Ouch!" Is this uh, is this the X Files? Are you watching the X Files? <laughs> I've been watching the X Files. Yeah, awesome. So uh, anyway, we're a podcast about culture and politics in the South. <laughs> 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 Welcome to our episode uh, this week, <laughs> Catholic Ghostbusters. Um, so I have uh, I have something uh, I want to read to you all. This is uh, from November 26, 2021 from the New York Post. Uh, the headline, this is in the living section, the living. It could have gone otherwise, but it's in the living section. Uh, woman <laughs> fires gun at her vagina in Cam Show crotch shot gone horribly wrong. Um, this probably wasn't the kind of money shot she was banking on. Georgia webcam model Lauren Hunter Damon, 27, redefined crotch shot after discharging a firearm into her vagina during an alleged sex stunt gone awry. 
The female had shot herself in the vagina accidentally, paramedic Brittany Rivers reportedly. Of course, the paramedic was named Brittany. We already know. Uh, Brittany Rivers reportedly told responding police officers of the incident, which reportedly occurred on the morning of November 9th at a residence in Thomaston, per a report by the Upson County Sheriff, the smoking gun reported. Uh, I'm going to uh, break to tell you I'm reading the, the actual incident report right now, which is in Thomaston, Georgia. It takes place on Manly Road, M-A-N-L-Y, <laughs> Manly Road. I was going to say that it was reported by the smoking gun is is uh, uh, miraculous in and of itself. Yes. Yes, it is. Later <laughs> interviews of witnesses revealed that the sex pistol turned gunshot victim was apparently alone in her bedroom when the weapon, a 9mm handgun, went off. Officers were first alerted to firearm fiasco after receiving an accidental gunshot wound call from the residents, according to the police report. Upon arriving at the scene, a sheriff's deputy encountered EMS Rivers, who was holding the unloaded handgun in a spent bullet casing in her hands. She told the officer that Damon had blasted herself in the nether regions, which is one word. I didn't realize that. I guess it should have. Uh, police then conducted interviews with Damon's three housemates, two of whom were present during the accident, to try and shed light on the alleged boudoir backfire. Jordan Allen, the reported owner of the firearm, told officers that he was in the kitchen walking back to the bedroom when he heard the gun go off. Upon reaching the bedroom, Allen discovered Damon with a small amount of blood on her leg. Unless he was fortunate at this point, a small amount of blood. At which point she reportedly informed him that she shot herself accidentally and apologized. To who? She shot herself? <laughs> uh, meanwhile, a second witness named Cody Starnes told deputies that his mother, 80 Ruth Johnson, came into his bedroom and reported that Damon had been shot. Allen revealed to officers how her inadvertent vaginoblasty allegedly transpired. Per the report, Allen said Damon has subscribers, it's in quotes, has subscribers on a sexual <laughs> web platform called Chatter, where people pay to see her make sexual videos. He believes she was recording one of said kinky clips when the gun went off. However, it appears that Chatter is actually Chatterbait, a popular adult site where viewers pay webcam models tips in exchange for fulfilling their sexual fantasies on camera. Although it is yet unclear whether Damon was broadcasting at the time of the mishap or if the clip was slated to appear on the porn platform. Immediately after the accident, Damon was rushed to the Upson County Sheriff's Office where a helicopter flew her to a Macon hospital. She was discharged this week. Upson County Sheriff Dan Kilgore told the smoking gun that the freak accident, I guess you could read that a lot of ways, which is department classified, so the reckless conduct in the report will likely not result in criminal charges. However, according to Kilgore, Damon provided multiple conflicting accounts of the shooting to police, at one point claiming that the weapon discharged during consensual sex with Alan. Mm, it's a mystery wrapped inside an enigma. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, they've made all the jokes and puns, I guess, in the... Uh, they did. Uh, they went for it. It's the, the New York Post. Person. Well, yeah. Although they so completely whiffed on it being on Manly holidays. Road. They, <laughs> they completely whiffed on it. Well, that's true. Um, yeah, that's what I think. It kind of plays into all this. So we've seen also this week, I don't know if you saw uh, Lauren Boebert and Representative Thomas Massey's uh, holiday cards, Christmas cards. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I I saw the I one where the gun the Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have them hanging on the wall. Yeah, I got them in the mail. Season's greetings, Chad. It's been another uh, remarkable uh, year yeah, in the Massey thanks. household. You are uh, one of our top, you are one of our gold circle donators. 
It's one of those things, we talked about it last time, but it's just kind of amazing to me. Like, for most of my life, gun owners have, like, pitched us on, we are the most responsible people. That's why you have to, like, that's why all this works out yeah. is because gun owners are the most reasonable, responsible people on Earth. Now it's just gun owners wild out, just yeah. wild out as much as you can. Jesus would like it. I mean, we're beyond that. I mean, I'm kind of arguing the uh, hypocrisy of... Uh, Christmas with our guns is, um, I think we're beyond that, but that's there too. That's, I mean, it's what Jesus would have wanted. Also, someone made the point, and I don't like get into defending uh, Biden and Kamala Harris too much, but in the same week when uh, Kamala Harris was being um, pilloried for buying like La Crusade pots, which are expensive, um, like you can display all of these guns that you bought, which I know each one of those is way more expensive than a liquid. So that's like the thing that always gets me about the gun. Like that's like, I can kind of let it go, you know, let your, you know, let your kids have like a semi-automatic rifle, but, but like a (laughs) $5,000 semi-automatic rifle. I mean, yeah, like, I mean, guns are expensive. I mean, guns are, guns cost Like why are all those kids running around with, Gun. Why are those kids running around with five thousand dollar guns? And I wanted to get it. I want to get him on to talk about it, but I've been busy trying to finish my book this week. Uh, uh, Pre order my book at wherever it comes out. Um, that uh, Drew McKevitt, uh, uh, maybe friend of the pod, I don't know, who's a professor at Northwestern Louisiana, one of the Louisiana universities, is writing a book about guns in America, and he had an op ed in the Washington Post this week about about one of the reasons for the spread of gun ownership in America. And and a lot of it is about that gun manufacturers hit a ceiling of how many guns people will buy as hunters, right? You only, there's a limited market of people who hunt in America. And they they hit that ceiling a few decades ago and realized we have to kind of create a market for our products. And that market began like, you're not safe was one market. And then another was, uh, guns have tons of consumerist capitalist accessories that you have to get for them. And you also have to upgrade your guns. You have to have the cool gun. You can't just have a hunting rifle. You have to have like a $5,000 modded out AR-15, you know, with like a laser sight on it. If you want to be, if you want to put pictures of your guns on Facebook yeah. and have other guns. And for, for when the rappers, when the rappers come to get you. Like... Yeah, when, when someone's freestyling on your doorstep. <laughs> When, when there's a cipher in your front yard, uh, when someone says, uh, "Yeah, I'm here with a mic, mic in my hand," I'm just here to you gotta, I'm here breakdancing to save the orphanage. Like, yeah. when you actually have to ether somebody, <laughs> you you have to own like the coolest gun possible, the most expensive gun possible, and so that like our this whole gun culture has been largely created is just like a a method to sell to sell people weapons that they certainly don't need. I mean, I think that's, I don't know. I mean, I probably feel like Lauren Boebert's kids are probably in danger. They probably need those guns Mm -hmm. to to protect from her. Yeah. To use against their mother, their mother their who is the, like the only, well, isn't that, I think their dad is the only actual criminal in the household. Right. Dad is. I didn't see their dad. Their dad was missing. I think is he, maybe they locked him up. Um, also their mom as repeated health code violations were given like half the population of Colorado, the runs by Diarrhea. Not having the health standards <laughs> at her shitty restaurant, her gun themed restaurant. 
That's one thing too. That's okay. Now this is going to be about the South for a second. Second, how fake is that? How fake do you have to be to not just have a natural restaurant where people have guns? You have to have a gun-themed restaurant. You have to tell them. I can think of a lot of restaurants I could have gone in uh, when I was uh, growing up where people may have had guns. Uh, you didn't have to theme the restaurant gun restaurant. That seems fake to me. Well, but it's in a town called Rifle, Colorado. I know. So it's a gun-themed town. Um, <laughs> yeah. so which is just, more fake that's like how fake do you have to be to have a gun like, I grew up in a gun themed town no one ever had to say it was a gun themed town just people disappeared sometimes um. <laughs> <laughs> that's true but we can't talk about it on this recording I can tell you an interesting story about things that happen in Destin, Florida when you uh, are in the wrong anyway hey there was one piece of really good news about the South this week you want to uh, guess on it or can I tell you was it about uh, uh, a backlash that it looks like Buckhead might not leave Atlanta? <laughs> no, I didn't see that. No, this is even better news. I'll just uh, break it to you. Um, Carabelle, Florida's own Buck O'Neill, Negro League legend Buck O'Neill, was finally inducted into the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. And if you have never had a chance to hear Buck O'Neill tell a story about anything, please um, look up Buck O'Neill on YouTube. There's a great story he tells on an old Letterman episode about um, when he was in the Negro Leagues with Jackie Robinson, touring with Jackie Robinson. And David Letterman asked him, like, what like what was different? Like, what was special about Jackie Robinson? And Jack and Buck O'Neill said, like, so many, like, like uh, Buck O'Neill was talking about, like, he grew up, you know, in, in the panhandle of Florida under segregation, and he just wanted out. But like uh, Jackie Robinson had not grown up under that kind of segregation. And so it was had a lot of pride and just would refuse to accept these conditions. And so when they were touring, um, their bus pulled into a gas station on the way out of a town they had played. And their bus had two big 50 gallon gas tanks on either side of the bus. And the gas station had a segregated bathroom. They were not allowed to use the bathroom there. And they all kind of knew that. But as they they as the guy came out to put gas into the tank, he was like, hey, y'all had a great game. We really enjoyed you. Uh, Jackie Robinson gets out and is going to the bathroom. And the owner says, like, well, where, where are you going? You can't use that. And Jackie Robinson said, take the pump out of the gas tank. Um, and the guy's like, yeah. why? He's like, we're, he's like You're, no one else is going to put 250-gallon tanks in at this gas station until next time we're in town. Take the hose out. And then the guy said, okay, you guys can use it, but make it quick. <laughs> and, um, and Buck O'Neill said, like, from that moment on, like, that kind of approach was how they went into everywhere because Jackie Robinson told them, like, uh, we live under capitalism and this is the power that we have, I believe is the actual quote. Uh, and, um, and so uh, introduced kind of that, that approach to them. So Buck O'Neill, he is kind of crazy that someone was – like live through these periods of history. Like he knew Josh Gibson, he knew Babe Ruth, he and he knew Jackie Robinson, and then lived up until he uh, passed away in 2006, so just 15 years ago, right? So he had this amazing um, career in baseball as a player and a manager and scout and everything else. That that um, and really, in a way, I know David, you're not as much into this, but I was uh, telling my kid yesterday that if he wants to learn about American history and he's into baseball, baseball is a great place to learn about American history. So Buck O'Neill kind of spans that, and and has like a lot of people uh, ask about like does Florida have an accent? And I don't really think Florida does, but if I could give one example uh, of what I think might be a Florida accent, Buck O'Neill has a great 
um, speaking voice. Sounds slightly like my my grandmother, so it's interesting to listen to. I think a lot of I think for me, it's like baseball in particular as a sport, but it's kind of like uh, uh, hunting. Like I have no interest at all in hunting, but there's a lot of great stories that come out of hunting. And there's great stories that come out of baseball and great stories that come out of a lot of sports. I mean, some more so than others. But, uh, um, you know, it's like um, uh, I'm not anti-sports to the degree that, like, I don't think there's anything interesting that ever had anything to do with sports. I just don't follow sports. I'm, you know. Yeah, I know. Well, I get the caveat. Hmm. I mean, this doesn't have much to do with the South, but, like, right now, like, I mean, there's a big labor struggle going on, like in Major League Baseball, and it's yeah, and um, you know, like the 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 owners have locked out the the players, players like the yeah. players' union, and it's I guess like Meg Rowley of Fangraphs like said it best was like a lot of like the people that are covering this are like oh well it's like millionaires versus billionaires, but right. it should be like because that's because like it's sports writers that are covering it right and right. like it's writers. really this is like the biggest like this is the most like high profile like labor struggle mm-hmm. that we're going to get like in america of like people that you know are you know that have you know like the biggest power struggle that the owners have have like are trying to exercise this power over the players and and that's the specific- that specific story is not confined to the South, although certainly there's a lot of baseball. Yeah, I mean, I guess South. it's not, it's not confined to the South, but it is like, but, but the problem is that it's all like, it's all sports writers are the ones that are covering it. So it's like, Oh, that's just yeah. millionaires versus billionaires. And I remember this the last time. What was the last year there was a strike? Was it the 94 or something? Yeah. Like last year was like 19. Yeah. Like nine, 1994 was like the last it, and I remember it was sold that way too. It's like, who cares about rich people arguing? And I can't remember who, but one sports writer was pointing out, like it kind of changed my mind back then was like, no, these are people with like certain skill sets and they're the best in the world at what they do in management. And their argument is with like the ownership who they're creating all of these profits for. Right. And, and it does not get phrased that way as labor. And it's one of the strongest labor unions that we have, like umpires union and baseball players union are insanely strong unions. Um, The, one of the strange things about that though, is that like, um, so like Tom Glavin from the Braves, I think was president of the players union for a while was a huge, hugely important in the baseball players union, really well-respected, really powerful in that point is now a guy who campaigns for Herschel Walker for Senate. And is like a Trump guy. And it's like, what? Like Drew Brees um, for the saints was the labor rep forever. And um, a lot of people, there's, there's a theory that like a lot of times that things that went against the saints and things that went against Drew Brees were antagonism from the owners because Drew Brees was a really powerful force for the the players union. And then if anyone knows about Drew Brees, like, I mean, at the very least, he's a, he's a like Bush kind of Republican, right? He's a very um, focus on the family kind of, kind of guy. And so like, it's not only just that it gets reported on this way. And I think the reportage is part of what does this because they never get the late, they never get like, um, any kind of, of uh, connection with a larger 
labor movement that is really it kind of makes me nuts. I always wish I always say like um, I wish that like if if you had these players unions doing like sympathy strikes with teachers unions and things like this, you would have actual chance to accomplish something. But I don't think they see themselves as being part of the same the same movement, which is unfortunate. Well, I was going to say that the the that specific story isn't the South, but anytime you're talking about union busting, certainly the South yeah. plays really big in that. And uh, Chad, you linked us a story about uh, the strike at Exxon in Beaumont. Yeah, um, so yeah, like it's like right now in Beaumont, uh, the United Steelworkers have been they were negotiating their contracts with Exxon. Um, and they just showed up one day and Exxon had locked them out. So they're locked out and they've been locked out like since like early November. And, um, and so I sent some links uh, to that. And, you know, people just don't want to work. Yeah, people don't want to work. <laughs> like they don't. Um, and. One locked door, and they're and they're um, uh, not not even showing up anymore. And it even was like it was like yeah, it was like the the steel workers weren't even like like they didn't strike before you know they were just negotiating the contract, and then just one day they showed up, and like Exxon said, you know, like we're not yeah, you don't get to show up, you don't get to work here anymore. And it's 650 union workers or steel workers local 13243. Yeah. And they yeah, they showed up and they were locked out. And I worry that um we're seeing a lot of union action right now, but the pandemic is also going to be an excuse for a lot of these companies to say, "Oh, look, it's hard times." Sorry. Yeah. So there's like a lot of good labor news going on, but there's also a lot of of weakening of labor too. Like I, the great news in Buffalo, New York is Starbucks, the local Starbucks union won their uh, unionized union vote today, which is great. But then I think you have a lot of other things going on in the background like this, where um, the pandemic is providing an excuse for owners to just say, Oh, hard times, tough luck. Uh, Cause we know like all, all these billionaires only in these companies have only gotten richer and richer and richer during the pandemic, like by exponential amounts. Um, I mean, yeah, and even like you look at all the supply, the supply chain stuff, and like all these like shipping companies right. that just they laid off tons of workers during the pandemic, right. and then everybody comes back online and they're like, oh, like the supply chain, the supply chain, like we don't have like we don't have the means to, you know, fill everything, and then it's just Joe Biden says, well, what if everybody just worked? What if everybody worked like overtime? Like what if everybody just worked? Yeah, we're getting, day, you know. we're getting way too close to my actual job right now. But this is like, Sorry. this is the thing. Like, no, that's fine. It's like, um, uh, it, it, sound, and it sounds kind of over the top to say this stuff now, but it's just true. It's like the way that global capitalism is set up, it can't do these things. And if you remember like back in March when the ship got stuck sideways in the Suez Canal, like uh, I made just a joke on Twitter about like um, capitalism is the most efficient system that we have for allocating resources until a boat gets stuck in the canal. Right. And so all of these I, don't, I still don't know. No one has explained to me like what the globe emoji is on Twitter. I don't understand the globe emoji people. But that tweet got like recirculated a lot saying this person is so dumb. They believe that uh, like socialism uh, won't have uh, supply chains, whatever. It's like, no, that's not the point. It's that like inside of global capitalism, anything that throws this, that makes this system stop moving for a moment 
throws off everything like throughout our society. And so like we have these supply chain issues that can just be the excuse for every, I mean, they're real, but it doesn't have to be catastrophic. Even for us, like right now I'm trying to move to England and usually you can get like shipping overseas, like to move is through the roof prices right now. The ship like half a container to the UK right now is like $8,000. We used to be able to get it for less than half of that. Right. And so all, all of these issues like that, we just don't Thanks think Obama. about in day to day life. Thanks, President Obama, um, for not dismantling uh, neoliberal <laughs> economics when you had the so, chance. Are you going to, so you can't do the container. Are you going to have to buy the kids' plane tickets? Uh, <laughs> rather not. Like, uh, Musashi's been learning how to swim. So, and Roma's pretty light. So we'll see if they. I'm it was always like when I watched It's a Wonderful Life. I always thought how fun it would be to work over to work my way over on a cattle boat. I always thought that would be fun. I actually do because I don't like planes very much. So I actually do uh, want to do that. And that's you know that's how Alex Haley used to write his novels. Was he would um, like take his typewriter and book passage on a cargo ship. Like well, was he working all the time, or was he type? Like, was he like, no? He was just he was a passenger, and he was so bored that yeah, he, he could write fun. a novel. Yeah, well, you know, Alex Haley got to start start as a novelist in the Coast Guard, so maybe he just wanted to be back on the water. Well, it could be, could be. Um, also, I have a another uh, thing for this. I'm going to read you part of it. Here we go. Oh, oh, one thing about the baseball strike real quick, too. There's an interesting wrinkle in that is that um, Major League Baseball is locked out, but international, like the Major League, was it MLIB? The internet, major, like the yeah. international, the inter is not yeah. locked out. So, like, all of these signings, like, that are going on through the Global South right now are like, hey, yeah, just keep like, going. Like, all the yeah, I mean, that's like a whole issue. Are getting signed up. Yeah, like, that's, that's a whole nother troubling issue yeah like the minor, minor league baseball is not don't worry minor league baseball is not locked out well they don't get paid anyway so like whatever yeah uh okay i'm gonna read this other thing for you uh the marine corps demolition specialist was worried about america and about the civil war he feared would follow the presidential election and so block by block he stole 13 pounds of c4 plastic explosives from the training ranges of camp lejeune uh, the riots. Talk about seizing guns. I saw this country moving towards a scary unknown future, the sergeant would later write in a seven-page statement to military investigators. I had one thing on my mind and one thing only. I am protecting my family and my constitutional rights. His crime might have gone undetected, but authorities caught a lucky break in 2018 as they investigated yet another theft from Lejeune, the massive base on coastal North Carolina. In that other case, explosives ended up in the hands of some high school kids. <laughs> These, these are not isolated cases. Hundreds and possibly thousands of armor-piercing grenades, hundreds of pounds of plastic explosives, as well as landmines and rockets have been stolen from or lost by the U.S. Armed Forces over the past decade, according to an ongoing Associated Press investigation into the military's failure to secure all its weapons of war. Still more explosives were reported missing and later recovered. Troops falsified records to cover up some thefts, and in other cases didn't report explosives as missing, investigative files showed. Uh, sometimes they failed to safeguard explosives in the first place. The consequences can be deadly. In August, an artillery shell exploded in a Mississippi recycling yard. Chris Smith had been taking a work break from the heat, drinking water and chewing tobacco. Suddenly, he found himself cradling a co-worker who was ble bleeding profusely from his legs. The man died right there. 
for no reason at all, Smith said in an interview. Two days later, an intact shell was found at the scrapyard. The local sheriff's department said the round was the kind used in a howitzer, a long-range artillery weapon. Investigating authorities suspect the shells came from Camp Shelby, an Army National Guard base about 40 miles away. Mississippi National Guard spokeswoman Lieutenant Colonel Deirdre Smith said she knows of no evidence the shell originated there. This report goes on and on. So that was from the AP report, U.S. Military Explosives Vanish, Emerge in Civilian World, by Kristen Hall, M. Hall, Justin Pritchard, and James Laporta from December 2nd of 2021. So I'm sure there's absolutely nothing worrying about, about this. Un, un, unknown amounts of C4 circulating around America. And I would just like to highlight again that the, the guy who stole them said that he is really scared about riots and seizing guns and that I had one thing on my mind and one thing only. I am protecting my family and my constitutional rights. And to do that, he stole 13 pounds of C4 explosives. Oh, man. Did he take a... Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to ask if he had a Christmas card. If he had a Christmas card with every all his kids have it. All, all the C4. Well, C4. it's, it's kind of like strapped to them. It's strapped across them, kind of like a vest. <laughs> and, and they, they have seem the, to be holding. Uh, yeah, they're doing scholar they hold. The, they have the you triggers, know. you know, that mm. if they lift their, you know, if they lift their, you know, if the pressure is lifted, the, the they yeah. go off. Yeah. I've seen those cards. I get those cards all every year. Right. Yeah, I'm sure it's completely fine. That's how I protect my constitutional rights, too. Praise. Yeah. Praise Sorry, David, me. what were you saying? I was just saying, I usually worry about when I hear about that sort of thing, them showing, up, showing up in my neighborhood in Mexico. Oh, but, Mexico, yeah. Uh, but this time, it sounds like they're headed for Washington. I would not be surprised if they showed up in Roddy Branch. Uh, well, Roddy Branch, but I was thinking that January 6th, uh, I don't imagine that January 6th is going to come again and go again without some shenanigans. Well, that's so uh, I so I might it's weird because I listen to a lot of like leftist podcasts and whatnot. And there's a lot of downplaying of January 6th. I'm the opposite. I upplay it. I think that people I think maybe it's because I'm a little bit older than some of those people. But I, I think we all remember all like the white supremacist movements of the 1980s and stuff, which 90s, which ended in Oklahoma City, or not ended, which resulted in Oklahoma City. And I think not enough people have paid attention to the fact that on January 6th, they found like diversionary explosives like located around the area and um, and like, you know, uh, semi-automatic weapons like laid in cars, like so that you could go and get get to them once um, things started popping off. Which is a good segue into my, maybe it'll be our last story today, but my uh, local dipshit, uh, Matt Gates, everybody's favorite, Matt Gates. Praise him. Um, yeah. As I, as I say to the public, hey, if you guys had gotten behind uh, our whole campaign back a few years ago, we could have maybe lost to Matt Gates. But uh, anyway, so there's a story uh, in Raw Story from today, December 9th, 2021, of Matt Gates appears on Steve Bannon's podcast. 
Um, and it's entitled Get Them Ready Now. Matt Gates and Steve Bannon discuss plan to take over government with shock troops. And this sounds a bit like, oh, this headline's kind of uh, playing it up a bit. But no, this is what he said. So um, this is his appearance on. And Steve Bannon, like, make no mistake, uh, I don't have any, like, there's arguments about, do we call this fascism or not? I don't have any uh, argument about that or qualms. It, it, like, Steve Bannon coordinates with, like, right-wing forces in, in Eastern Europe, like in Hungary and stuff. It's not, <laughs> it's not, like, in the dark. It's not, like, obfuscated what he's trying to do. Okay, so here's Matt Gray's uh, quote. People didn't like that Donald Trump raised his voice, but sometimes you got to raise your voice to raise a ruckus, to raise an army of patriots who love this country and will fight for her. Uh, which is ironic that Matt Gates is saying that because he could still sign up for the military and I can provide him a map with recruiters in Oklahoma County. Because if you were like me, those recruiters tried to recruit you nonstop all through high school, but not Matt because his dad is worth half a billion dollars. Anyway, Gates said on Bannon's War Room program, we're going to operationalize the performance to go right after the people who are imposing the vaccine mandates, who are enriching themselves and who are selling out the country. Uh, Bannon says, understand this is a theory of governing, Bannon agreed. It's fresh and it's new. This is Trumpism in power. That's what we went to the, that's when we went to the 4,000 shock troops we have to have. That's going to man the government. Get them ready now, right? We're going to hit the beach with the landing teams and the beachhead teams and all that nomenclature they use when President Trump wins in 2024 or before. You're going to have those as the 4,000 political appointees, he continued. No more powder puff dirty, der, derby. This is going to be hardcore accountability at every committee in Congress. Yes, Gates replied, and we're going to go after this administrative state, and we're going to start at the Department of Justice and the FBI. That's the job I want. You know, send me over to the Judiciary Committee, and their sphincters will tighten because they have been doing a lot of corrupt things over there. Uh, I don't need a new committee. I just need a gavel, he said. Uh, so these two guys are not keeping in the dark what their plans are. And I have no doubt that Trump, unless he dies of something in the meantime, if like eating like the ha- Hamburglar show, he trips over the Hamburglar getting to his, his dinner <laughs> in shot uh, that he's going to run in 2024. Right. And that he has a very good chance of winning. And this is clearly the plan. Like this is clearly, I mean, they're getting, they got away with January 6th. Like nothing's going to happen about that. Uh, they're getting away with redistricting. Like, why would they not do this? Yep. Yep. I mean, I, weird, I, yeah. I just, I don't understand how um, there can be like dire, dire consequences for non-issues and non-crimes mm-hmm. uh, if you're... Um, on the left and the, or I mean, not even on the left, but just like not, just a, not a movement conservative. Yeah. And Anything outside uh, of movement conservatism. Yeah. And the movement and that these guys like, like, you know, what happened to um, uh, Trump was going to be uh, arrested as soon as he was out of office. What happened to like just one thing after another, where there just seems to be no follow through the, uh, Justice Department doesn't seem to be, I mean, maybe I, I mean, clearly I don't completely understand everything that's going on in all these cases, but it feels like nothing at all is going on in any of these cases. 
I think it's probably because nothing at all is going on. Like, yeah. I think there's a segment of the population of Democrats, probably like hardcore MSNBC viewers, who think there's some kind of eight-dimensional chess going on, like where uh, Democrats are going to outsmart Republicans because Democrats are smart. Yeah. And it's like, it's, no, uh, Republicans have understood what the game is for decades, and they're just going to run over you because Democrats are obsessed with the process and obsessed with the rules and think that somehow if you're... Uh, if you're good enough and smart enough, doggone it, people will like you instead of, you know, if they send you a fundraising email to be like, this is the most important dire consequence that's ever happened for America ever. Well, then do something. And then, it's, well, doing something might upset Larry Summers. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole thing. Like, I mean, if you look at like the Ilion Omar and like the stuff that Nancy Pelosi said this week, it's like, well, why don't, why doesn't she just like take it up with like the Republicans? Like, why don't the, you know, it's like, that'll work. Like, yeah, like that'll work. Like, I mean, I am kind of like, yeah, like a lot of this January 6th stuff was like absolutely silly, but it was like a step. Like, it was a it was a step in the in the wrong direction and why did we not do anything about I mean it's seeing what you can get away with, right? It yeah, it was just seeing get, what you could get away with. And and it was like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, we don't well, wanna like, make people mad. Like we don't wanna make we don't wanna make Matt Gates mad, we don't wanna make Louis Gomert mad, we don't wanna make Bobert mad, we don't wanna make uh what's his uh the the future house speaker maybe uh matt you know mccarthy mad you know we don't want to make up like we just want to bipartisan we want bipartisanship so like let's just you know we'll kind of like kind of we'll just punt you know we'll keep punting and eventually we keep punting and eventually you know eventually like matt gates is you know maybe it's not this year or next year but eventually you know matt gates and the producer of seinfeld shock troops show up you know i don't know like you know or yeah, like always... trump gets reelected. you know like the you know the um what do you call it the midterms are coming up you know the midterms are coming up yeah. like or he gets yeah he gets named speaker of the house even though he's not a house you know and they impeach and they impeach but Bi- you know biden gets impeached you know for some Which... dumb shit which I think we all know is going any time from now on that there's a Democratic president and uh, Republicans control the House, the president will be impeached every time. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's like yeah. once once the impeachment of Trump happens, because you have to make you have to make um, actual. This is what Republicans have been great at my whole life. You have to make actual, real like uh, misfeasance and bad conduct just be the same as something that's completely made up. So that way, you 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 wash it away. So like you have Iran Contra, which I still don't think people get like how serious a deal yeah. Iran Contra is, where you just decide to subvert Congress to fund a war that you want to have. Right? Yeah. You just, you well, fund- we'll go around that. And, and we'll find a and, way and you fund, fund and you fund like a. You fund another gover- extra governmental organization that kills, you yeah, know, death that is bad you fund death you're funding bad guys. You're funding bad guys. Right. Know? Like in the very like G.I. Joe sense of bad guys and the way that everyone could understand <laughs> them as bad guys, except for Richard Secord, who I told him to his face uh, while uh, shaking his hand that uh, they were the bad guys. And he's like, no, no, Santa is very bad fellows. Anyway, um, 
But yeah, so you can like as long as you yell and scream about like fake. Like this is why Benghazi is such an important thing in the conservative universe, right? Which I still I've asked people to explain to me what was supposed to be the thing that's exceptional about Benghazi. I will never, and I've read all the documents. I will never understand what is different about it and anything else that happened. Um, but you have to have things like that so that you can then say, well, but this, right? So, oh, January 6th happened, but don't you remember that BLM, uh, BLM uh, stole some Christmas cards from a CVS? And burnt down the Target. Yeah. Burnt down the Capitol. Yeah, and well, even I, though we know, even though we know now, like conclusively, that like uh, most of the burning that happened in Minneapolis was by uh, a very, like a you know a white supremacist, um, like a right wing gang member, like he's been found, and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, uh, it, you know, like I say all the time, like my dad and his friends honestly believe that like places in in major American cities like burn down, like that it's scary, like that it's dangerous to be in New York. It's dangerous to be in Minneapolis. I was uh, going to say about the silliness of a lot of the January 6th stuff and about the stupidity and impracticality of it all. If I walk barefoot into a bank with a super soaker and try to rob that bank with that, <laughs> yeah. barefoot, with that super soaker while I'm barefoot, I'm still going to jail and I'm still being uh, charged with a, the serious crime of trying to rob a bank. It doesn't make any yeah. difference that I'm doing it in the stupidest possible manner. I yeah, think I mean, it was funny though. Yeah, I'd laugh. I would appreciate it. it. But it's like when I was in high school, they have the the police come in and tell you, like, kids, if you try to sell somebody like a bunch of like parsley and say it's weed, we will charge you with selling weed. It doesn't matter. Right? But like and I'm trying to remember, I should, this is something I should know. Who was it? Was it Foucault? It's one of the European theorists like wrote about like anti-Semitism um, and like, like fascist anti-Semitism and say like, yeah, they're goofy all the time on purpose because they enjoy playing with the boundaries yeah. of what's acceptable. And that's part of the fun for them in, in, in doing this. And you see this with like fascists all the time. Like, I think a lot of people forget too. Um, because like so little, so few Americans like know about the actual fascist movement is the fascists were silly as fuck. They were ridiculous. Yeah. Like that's, um, there was so much play acting and theater and drama. I mean, that's why like Nazis work as Indiana Jones villains, because they actually were interested in finding like supernatural relics that would give them like yeah. lightning <laughs> power and stuff. It's like they they were ridiculous just because they did horrible things. We remember them as being serious, but they were yeah. they were goofy. They were well, my plan, my plan for next January 6th is that just like when you're in line at the airport, they just all over Washington, they put up signs that say no jokes. Mm hmm. And maybe that will stop. Maybe that will stop the. Uh, well, the I just remember. I remember the girl like when it was like, "Oh, Ed Reinhardt." Uh, there's a lot of funny uh, names in baseball today. <laughs> That's a good one. All right. Well, on that happy note, that concludes this week yeah, of our program. Everything about the South. Yeah, we really went in hard. Whoa, Matt Gates. <laughs> Buck O'Neill. Uh, though all those missing explosives were in the South, and I don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> hey, keep an eye out. 
email us. Email us if you find we, any of those. Yeah. Websites. You know, you can cook with C4. If you light it on fire, if you're careful with it, you can run a campfire of C4. Man, they say C4 dangerous, but it ain't gone dang dangerous. You know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. You light it on fire with a lighter and you don't stomp it. You stomp on it, man. I think people are kind of dumb. They'll stomp on it. If you don't want to stomp on C4, you can run a campfire. Anyway, see you next week. God bless. Bye.